Jonathan Edwards was just 18 years old in 1722. It was the fall of that year, probably somewhere around December of that year, November, December of 1722, that this young man, Jonathan Edwards, began compiling his 70 resolutions. He began compiling this list because he believed that he needed guiding principles that would order the rest of his life. He began that list with a prefatory comment, including these words. He wrote, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. He then went on to list the first resolution, which reads as follows, Resolved, I will do whatever I think will be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure for as long as I live. I will do all these things without, without consideration of the time they take. Resolved to do whatever I understand to be my duty and will provide the most good and benefit to mankind in general. Resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I encounter, and no matter how many I experience or how severe they may be. He reached number 35 of his 70 on December 18th of that year, 1722, and he finished the final one, number 70, on August 17th, 1723. The, these resolutions cover an array of issues, even related to such simple things as food and drink, but also to more profound things such as the study of Scripture. What they indicate to us was Edward's determination to bring every aspect of his life under the lordship of Christ. When you read through that list of 70 resolutions, you're struck by Edward's concept of resolve. The term resolve or resolved occurs some 78 times in this list of resolutions. For Edwards, the unresolved life was not worth living. He believed that God had created and then redeemed believers to live on a much higher plane than the mediocre living that so many others were content to live. And certainly, while Edwards did not live up to all of these 70 resolutions perfectly, he certainly aimed at those resolutions well, and as we know even to this day, Jonathan Edwards is considered to be America's most acute theological thinker. Edwards' resolve illustrates to us believing men today how we ought to strive to structure our own thinking. Christian thinking can never just be a matter of natural reflex. It, it can't just be an accident. Christian thinking can't be, it can't be empty. It, it can't be 
neutral. It must be increasingly conformed to the right standard and aimed at the right target. After all, as we've already studied when we looked at Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 38, that, that man's chief end is to love God with all his heart, all his soul, and all his mind. We also have already studied in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that our act of acceptable worship is not only the presentation of our bodies as holy, but also the transformation of our minds through renewal. Renewing our minds. That's what we are called to as Christian men. Now to to consider this in terms of the acquisition of knowledge. Aiming our minds at the truth as as Edwards sought to do with resolve, structuring our minds, seeking to acquire the right thought patterns, there is a very important place to which we must turn. And we haven't looked at this portion of Scripture yet in our study of the Christian mind, so we will do so this evening. It is the book of of Proverbs. And as we turn to the the book of Proverbs, we, we find a a text that summarizes well another aspect of the Christian mind, another aspect of the regenerate mind, and that is the the resolve to seek God's knowledge and to prize that knowledge uh, above all other things. The important text from which our thoughts will will uh, be based this evening is Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, although we'll be looking at the entire book. But here Solomon writes to his son these words, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, Lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Right in the middle, verse 4 calls upon, Solomon here, calls upon his son to seek understanding as silver and search for understanding, to search for knowledge as for hidden treasures. Well, how do we do that? How do we seek knowledge? How do we acquire knowledge? And this evening, what I want to do is look at a topic which we call intellectual virtues, the intellectual virtues necessary for the acquisition of truth. How do we acquire true knowledge? How do we acquire truth? As I said, this is what many will call the, 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 the habits that, that we employ in that pursuit. Many will call intellectual virtues. One writer describes 
intellectual virtues in this way. He says this, quote, By intellectual virtues, I mean qualities such as wisdom and understanding and foresight and love of truth. These intellectual virtues are deeply anchored habits of mind that contribute to the success of our many intellectual endeavors and ultimately to our ability to lead excellent lives. Well, that's what we've really been studying this whole year. And of course, we've been looking at the Christian mind in in various ways and, and, and considering various aspects of that. But this evening, we need to focus on the particular virtues, those deeply anchored habits of mind that are essential for the successful acquisition of knowledge and ultimately for the successful application of that knowledge to everyday practical life. The book of Proverbs is the ideal place to go to when considering these intellectual virtues. Now, just kind of by, by, by way of an aside here, when, when we talk about intellectual virtues, this is actually something that many philosophers throughout the centuries have, have discussed, going all the way back to early Greek philosophers. They've talked about intellectual virtues, and, and generally speaking, the, the philosophers will, will categorize these intellectual virtues into various groups. We're not going to look at all of these tonight, but there's four fundamental categories of intellectual virtue that that we can identify, or that philosophers have identified. The first one is called acquisition virtues. The acquisition virtues are those habits that are essential for seeking knowledge. If you want to be successful in seeking knowledge, then you need these acquisition virtues. Another category, a second one, is is called application virtues. These are virtues that are essential for seeking wisdom, really for for seeking life, for for being able to take knowledge and apply it correctly to everyday thinking so that you live the, the excellent life, the life that God has called us to. A third category Uh, is the category called cultivation virtues. These are the virtues that are necessary for bringing our mind into consistency with this knowledge, for defending this knowledge, for for understanding it more deeply. These are are cultivation virtues, and and these these virtues focus on growth and, and seeing how that knowledge then reverberates throughout the entire mind, brings everything into a consistency and integrity of thinking, and and then also enables the individual to defend that knowledge. And then finally, a fourth category is what we might call communication virtues. These are virtues that that, that relate to the intellectual endeavor in terms of, of influence, It's our mission to communicate truth, to be mouthpieces of divine truth. Now this evening, we're going to look at this first category, acquisition virtues. The virtues that are necessary for 
the acquisition of knowledge. And, and we are going to study five of them. And they're as, as follows. They're fear, humility, hunger or desire, teachableness and persistence. Those are the, the acquisition virtues that we will study this evening. As I said, these are the habits necessary for seeking knowledge. When we talk about the mind, we talk about the need to acquire knowledge. And, and we read that in Solomon's own words. And these acquisition virtues are what we can call a cluster of dispositions. A cluster of, of qualities that enable one to increasingly conform his understanding to God's knowledge. To conform one's understanding, one's thinking, one's thoughts to God's reality. These are the habits that are necessary to correct the thoughts that you already have. And in some cases, these are the habits that are necessary to mortify some of the ideas that you have. Incorrect understandings of reality. These are also the the qualities, the habits that you need for even adding to and growing in, gaining new thoughts, new ideas that are true and consistent with God. And as I said, these five, these five acquisition, these five acquisition virtues are going to be fear, humility, desire, teachableness, and persistence. We don't need to turn to the philosophers to find those. We are going to find them very clearly articulated for us in God's wisdom, in God's word in the book of Proverbs. Now just a little note before we get into those five virtues, some definitions here because we're going to come across these terms regularly in in our study of Proverbs this evening. First of all, the term knowledge. When we talk about acquiring knowledge, what are we talking about? Well, we could define knowledge this way. Knowledge is a thought that corresponds to reality as God has determined it to be. That's knowledge. And and of course, we are defining this unashamedly from the Bible's perspective. Of course, there are many different definitions of knowledge. If you ask any unbeliever what knowledge is, he'll give you his own definition. But we are defining it according to the revelation of God's word. And knowledge, biblically defined, true knowledge... Knowledge that is consistent with God's revelation is a thought that corresponds to, that reflects reality as God has determined it to be. So that thought might be about something like God himself. That that thought might be something about your own identity. That thought might be related to an illness that you're struggling with. That thought might relate to your career, relationships, whatever it may be, if it's knowledge in the true sense, it is something that corresponds to the way that God sees those things, the way that God has determined those things to be. Therefore, to know something truly 
is to think about it in a way that reflects God's thought about that thing. Whether it's, as I said, a career issue, whether it's a personal circumstance in life, whether it's about God himself, knowledge, rightly defined, is a thought that reflects God's thoughts. Now, the term wisdom is a little different, especially in the book of Proverbs. When we talk about wisdom, we're talking about the skill of correctly connecting that knowledge to practical living. In this sense, the term knowledge has more to do with that second category of intellectual virtues. Remember, I I mentioned the second category is the category of, of applicational virtues, application virtues. But nonetheless, wisdom is so closely connected to the first category that we have to mention it here. Wisdom is is that skill of being able to take that which has been understood, that thought, that knowledge that has been acquired, and applying it then to everyday living. To be wise is to have the ability to act rightly in different situations, whatever they may be, it's, it's the ability to act rightly and skillfully, to apply truth to real life and to act according to principle, not just impulse, not just instinct, not just pragmatic necessity, but to principle. Now, as it relates to these acquisitional virtues... What are necessary? Let's look at the first of the five. Number one, fear. Yes, fear is a virtue, and it is essential for the acquisition of knowledge. What are we talking about when we talk about fear as an intellectual virtue? You can define it this way. Fear is reverence. And in light of the book of Proverbs in particular, fear is that acknowledgement that the Lord, that Yahweh alone, is the source and standard of all truth. He is the one who determines reality. He is the one who determines right from wrong. Let's look at a few Proverbs that express the importance of this particular intellectual virtue. Proverbs 1 verse 7 expresses what we know to be the entire motto of the book of Proverbs. Solomon writes this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9 verse 10 states the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You could look also at Proverbs 15 verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. Over and over again we see that that the, 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 the sage, the wise man Solomon and we see it elsewhere in the book of Job, in the, in, in the Psalter as well, and throughout the Scriptures, that the fundamental intellectual virtue which we must cultivate in order to properly 
acquire knowledge is that of reverence. And notice as we look at these texts, that this acquisition of knowledge that is spoken of here, that is driven by fear, it, it, it is on the one hand, it's theological, it's, it, it, it's related to Yahweh, it's important because we must understand that, that learning is, is always theological, always theological. God is the source of knowledge means that the process of acquiring that knowledge is inseparably related to the source of that knowledge, to the Lord himself. Notice it's also exclusive. It is exclusive. It, it, this knowledge comes from Yahweh alone. If there is anything true, if there is anything real that must be understood and, and, and applied to life, it must be connected to him and him alone. He is the exclusive source. And notice, it's also relational. Learning is relational because the, the successful acquisition of knowledge is based upon a right relationship to Him. A right posture to Him. A right attitude to Him. An attitude which is called fear. That word fear means Reverence. Martin Luther defined it as a filial fear. In other words, it's the kind of fear that a child has for his father. And that fear that a child has for his father, the good kind of fear, is a fear that brings the child to to stand in awe of his dad. And, and though he recognizes his father to, 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 to be this great man, and though he's, he's in awe of him, he, in, in any circumstance, especially one that is threatening, he does not run from his father, but to him. He recognizes that his father, with, having this filial fear to his father, he recognizes that his father is the solution. His father is the protection. And this is the kind of fear that we must cultivate if we are to acquire knowledge successfully. Matthew Henry states it this way. He says, in order to the attaining of all useful knowledge, this is most necessary, that we fear God. We are not qualified to profit by the instructions that are given to us unless our minds be possessed with a holy reverence of God and every thought within us be brought into obedience to Him. That is so very, very important. If you're serious about acquisition of knowledge, this is where it begins. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Conversely, as Spurgeon stated, the the absence of that fear will create a man who is a danger. He said this, the worst sort of clever men are those who know better than the Bible. They're the worst kind of wise men. We studied that a, a few weeks ago as we looked at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. 
and how the, the wise men, the scribe, the debater of this age looks upon Yahweh, looks upon the message of the cross and his revelation as, as foolishness and a stumbling block. But Paul says to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this is how we are to, 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 to understand the beginning of, of the acquisition of knowledge. It, it must begin with fear. So how do we cultivate that fear? How do we cultivate the fear of God in terms of this intellectual virtue? First of all, it means we must strive to know God for who He is as He has revealed Himself to be. Now everyone here is a theologian. Everyone in this room has thoughts about God. Everyone. But not all those thoughts are consistent with how God has revealed himself to be. And so fundamentally, if if we are to structure our minds correctly, and and if we are to, to develop and mature in our thinking, if we are to be renewed in our minds, it begins at this first step of knowing who God is as he has revealed himself to be. And that means, men, that studies about the perfections of God must take priority in your life. You might say, well, I want to know about all these other things. I'm, I'm curious about, about all these other doctrines. I, I'm curious about eschatology, or I'm, I'm curious uh, 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 about heaven, or I'm curious about this or that. But you must begin first and foremost with who God is as he has revealed himself to be. And following on the heels of that, to cultivate intellectual fear as a virtue means you must recognize your own status and identity in relation to God. You must see yourself not as you prefer to see yourself, not as you look at yourself with rose-colored glasses, but you must see yourself as God sees you. Certainly, for those in Christ, that does mean Seeing ourselves in Christ. Seeing ourselves as God sees us through the righteousness of Christ. But it also means God also sees us in all those areas where where we still fail to conform to Christ. And so seeing ourselves in God's Light means looking upon ourselves as He sees us and defining our actions and confessing our sins, and, and our infirmities as God sees them. In fact, when we look at a text like 1 John 1 verse 9, it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That verb confess means to speak the same way. And that indicates that in our confession, we are to call our sins the same thing that God calls them. We are to define our actions the way God does, not candy coat them, but to to articulate them, to confess them the way that God calls it, calling a spade a spade. And the important thing here about this intellectual fear is that we see ourselves truly. That is not natural to us. 
We, our flesh tends to self-exaltation. We must understand ourselves as God does. Thirdly, another important step to cultivating intellectual fear means acknowledging that all learning must be God-centered. This means that you don't leave a bifurcated life where you have a religious life on Sundays or at Bible studies, but then you go about your business through the rest of the week as a secular person. That is impossible. And if that's how you live your life, you lack intellectual fear. Intellectual fear means that you acknowledge that all learning, whether you're learning to be an accountant or an electrician or a farmer, all learning has to be God-centered, recognizing God to be the source God to be the standard, the provider, the giver, the judge. And it means not only approaching all learning as God-centered, but seeing learning as an act of worship. All learning as an act of worship. The effort that you put in to, to take every thought captive and to conform it to the way that God thinks. That you reverence God so much that every idea is wrestled with, is compared to God's standard, and it is brought into conformity with his way of looking at things, that that in itself is, is worship. As we strive in all things to think God's thoughts after him, whether it is about our circumstances, whether it is about an apple that we're eating, whether that is about something far more grandiose. All learning is to be seen as an act of worship, and that is intellectual fear. Secondly, uh, the second intellectual virtue that we must cultivate is that of humility. And what we're talking about here with humility is is self-abasement. It flows quickly after the prior virtue of fear, this self-abasement is this sincere recognition that I don't know. It's the, it's the development of this, this perspective that, that I don't have the answers. That knowledge is not innate to me. That, as, as the sage will say in Proverbs 30 verse 2, that I am stupid. That's what humility says. And, and this intellectual virtue is very frequently admonished or instructed in the book of Proverbs in, in many different ways. And one of those ways is, is how often the book of Proverbs commands us not to lean on our own understanding, not to understand through our own eyes. For example, Proverbs 3 verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. There's humility right there. Refusing to be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Proverbs 11 verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Pride here speaks of this exaggerated, presumptuous self-reliance and confidence. I know. I know. I have the answers. I'll solve the problems. I'll just look within myself. 
self-reliance. Humility, on the other hand, is cautious as it relates to self. It's a modest self-awareness that accurately understands one's inadequacies and one's needs. And this is not an easy virtue to cultivate. That is for certain, and we all know that. Pride is one of those hideous sins that is so subtle that even in claiming to be humble, we're expressing pride. J.I. Packer said this, he said, it is to be feared that many Christians spend all their lives in too unhumbled and conceited a frame of mind ever to gain wisdom from God at all. Not for nothing does the scripture say, with the lowly is wisdom. With the lowly. Jonathan Edwards, writing about the, the, the Great Awakening, noted that this pride is not just a characteristic of the unregenerate mind, it is something that even marks many who are seemingly mature in the faith. He writes this, The first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Pride is the main handle by which he has hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. Spiritual pride is the main spring or at least the main support of all other errors. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. If, and to the extent that there is pride in our lives, you can be guaranteed that the acquisition of true truth, of true knowledge, will be greatly impeded, and the knowledge that you do gain will be used for the purpose of destruction. We studied that in 1 Corinthians 8, didn't we? Knowledge puffs up. And that's not the fault of knowledge, but it is the fault of the prideful heart that will use something so good as divine revelation, God's truth, and and orchestrate it and twist it so as to puff the, the knower up at the expense of the glory of God and for the destruction of others. Isaiah 66 verse 2 states it so well that God looks upon the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at his word. So how do we cultivate humility as an intellectual virtue? Well, one of the simple ways is to cultivate a willingness to acknowledge errors and weaknesses and therefore also the need for change. Being able to say, I was wrong. When was the last time you said that? I was mistaken. I didn't understand. Humility, the, the, the growth of humility will manifest itself in that kind of a statement. I was wrong. I was in error. It was a moment of my fleshly weakness. 
I need to change. Cultivating humility also is aware of this ever-present danger of something we call the illusion of mastery. The illusion of mastery is that idea that, that I already know that. So when you go to a Bible study and you, got a, you, you have a, the next text on the, the page to be studied and, and, and the Bible study teacher reads it and, and you just mentally check out because you say, I've already studied that passage. I already know it. No one can teach me. The illusion of mastery is that idea that, that I don't need to be taught. I don't need to, to learn this. I don't need to listen because I've already mastered this subject. I already know the doctrine of the Trinity. I already know the doctrine of sin and eschatology. I already know what John 3.16 means and Romans chapter 12 means and Romans chapter 8 and so on and so forth. I already know. That's the illusion of mastery and the cultivation of humility will destroy that illusion. It also means a kind of self-forgetfulness. And what this means is that in the pursuit of knowledge, you are not pursuing it because you are trying to make much of yourself. You're trying to be the know-it-all, the one who knows the most, the the one who can answer all the questions. No, there's a self-forgetfulness that is that is inherent to humility, so that you even forget that you are pursuing humility. You're not focused on yourself. You're focused on the truth. You're drawn to it not because of what it can do for you, but you're drawn to it because you've been grasped by its beauty. And that is what consumes you. It also is... Marked by a readiness to become a perpetual pupil, an an eternal student, where you're always residing at the feet of teachers. That can be a difficult thing, especially for us men as we grow older. You know, we we tend to think, well, being a student, that's for an 18-year-old or maybe a 25-year-old, but I'm 50. I've moved past that in my life. I've I've grown my kids. They're out of the home. All those things. And those things, those statements, those thoughts can can be reflections of intellectual pride. But intellectual humility says, I have got so much more to learn. And even if I've raised my kids, I will sit in a seminar about parenting and and learn what I, I missed. It means being a perpetual pupil. Number three, desire. Desire or hunger, this intellectual virtue is is marked by an inquisitiveness, a passion to learn. And it's especially expressed in the book of Proverbs by this verb, to seek. To seek, to pursue. That's what is involved here in in this particular virtue. For example, we saw it in Proverbs chapter 2. We read the, the words already where Solomon says to his son, for if you cry for discernment, notice there, there's the desire, like a baby longing for milk. If you cry for discernment, if you lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver, if you search for her as for hidden treasures, then, then he says, you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Notice 
how he is saying that this particular virtue of seeking, of hungering, is essential for the acquisition of the knowledge of God. In other words, if you don't cultivate desire, if, if there's no hunger in you for it, you cannot rest upon this guarantee. You don't hunger if you don't cry for it, if you don't lift your voice, if, if you don't seek, if you don't search, you won't discover. In Proverbs chapter 4, verses 7 to 9, Solomon says this, The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. And then he kicks it up a notch. He says, prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with the crown of beauty. He's using that picturesque language to demonstrate the fact that to the degree that you desire and pursue and seek wisdom will be the same, uh, the, the same degree to which wisdom will manifest itself in you. That as you pursue her, as you pursue the knowledge of God, it, it, that knowledge will, will become apparent in your life. It's a guarantee. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 14 says this, The mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge. But the mouth of fools feeds on folly. Notice, it is the intelligent one who is described as the one seeking knowledge. In other words, the the very characteristic or that very virtue of, of desire already makes one intelligent. It already makes one knowledgeable. Because the desire is there. Now, How do we cultivate this desire. Certainly, it's a, it's a challenging thing. That desire does not always exist. It's, it's certainly in, in a robust form. And we're talking about a holy ambition here, and, and that holy a- ambition is, is something that is not just something we stumble upon and, or, or wake up in the morning and it's, it's automatically just there, just appears. It's something that must be cultivated. You must develop a taste. You must develop the hunger for it. I remember in in, uh, living in the the former Soviet Union, one of the the, uh, favorite drinks there is something called kefir. It's also common in the Middle East, but kefir, I remember the first time I tasted it, I thought it was, I had bought drinkable yogurt. And if you're expecting drinkable yogurt... It came in the same kind of a bottle. If you think you're, you're going to drink drinkable yogurt, but instead you, you take a big gulp of kefir, that will be a shock. And I remember the first time it happened. It was repulsive. But over time, I recognized kefir is very help, healthy. Today I love kefir. But that taste, that desire had to develop. It's something that I had to cultivate. I had to recognize this is a lot healthier than a Coca-Cola or a glass of iced tea. It's, it's healthy, and so therefore that, 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 that hunger, that desire 
was cultivated. So how can we cultivate this desire for truth, for knowledge? First of all, it it recognizes a a, a discontent with one's present state. You have to, to look at yourself and the kind of knowledge that you have right now and say, no matter how old I am, no matter how long I've been studying, there's still more to go. I'm not going to just coast, put the car in neutral, and, and just let it ride out for the rest of my life. No, that's disastrous for desire. You must look at yourself and you might say that I have not arrived. There's still more to go. I'm not happy with where I'm at right now. Moreover, it's this, it's this resolve, the kind of resolve that, that Jonathan Edwards had, and it's, it's the, the, the resolve that will then set the will in motion. I, I, I have to study. The desire isn't that, that, that ambitious, but I've got to study. And by setting forth the resolve, by getting the mind to put the will in motion, the desire naturally follows. You do it enough, you work at it enough, and all of a sudden it's a part of your life, and you'll wake up then one day and note, I need to do this. I long to do this. It's also a refusal to settle for substitutes. There are all kinds of shortcuts and half-truths that, 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 that can satisfy the mind, at least for a moment. There's this kind of ear-tickling where, you know, if we're, we're left with the option of something that's easy to learn or something that's difficult, let's do the easy. If it's something that makes me feel good, if it's something that that, that will, will meet something that I just want to talk about or think about right now. I'm going to do that and tickle my ears. Cultivating desire means refusal of settling for these, these substitutes. These things that really will not help us in the long term. It also means fanning flames of a passion for lifelong learning. Again, no matter what age you are at, what... You have to think about your life and say, okay, what are the things that I can do that can fan the flame of of a new level of study in my life? Perhaps it's a recognition you've never studied the doctrine of the Trinity in any depth. And so you you set forth a plan, a strategy, and and, and you say, okay, now I'm going to tackle the Bible's teaching on the, the Trinity, or you set before yourself a list of the, the classic books of Christian theology, and you start tackling them one at a time. But what you want to do is fan these flames and become a lifelong learner, and you've got to figure out what it is that will pour fuel on the fire and do it. Number four, teachableness teachableness. This is receptivity. Here is such an important intellectual virtue. This is a receptivity that is needed here, especially a receptivity to the instruction and correction of others. If you were to to develop your mind and grow in maturation and how you think, you cannot move forward apart from this virtue. You must have a teachable spirit. And although the, the unteachableness uh, that is so common in man is, is prevalent, particularly among younger generations. This is a problem among all men. An unteachable spirit. 
one who will not accept correction. But as the book of Proverbs states, and it states it abundantly, that if there is to be growth and knowledge and understanding, it will only happen through the path of correction. Proverbs 1 verse 5, a wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. And that is a a reference there to wise instruction from other wise men. Proverbs 9 verse 9 says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in his learning. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. A, f- a few verses later, Proverbs 15, 31, he whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Proverbs 19, verse 20, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Or Proverbs 22, verse 17 to 18, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them with you that they may be ready on your lips. This is one of the main issues that the the book of Proverbs tackles is, is the problem of foolishness demonstrated in the resistance to correction. In, in many ways, the, the, one of the main themes of the book of Proverbs is this. Look, if you will become teachable, if you will accept the correction of others, you will have a good life. But if you resist, you are on the path to destruction. And certainly, and we know this in our own lives, look back. How many of you have experienced bad outcomes when you have humbled yourself and received correction. That doesn't happen. But how many times in our lives have we got ourselves into very difficult circumstances because we refused correction? And all of us could go on for hours detailing those events. And we all know it in the men around us. There are those who are so oblivious to correction and instruction. They are on a path and there's nothing you can do about it. No word you say will, will, will change their mind. And it is a sad state of a man who is in that place. One commentator says this about this emphasis in the book of Proverbs. The sages felt that mistakes provided opportunities for learning. They also apparently assumed that everyone would make mistakes along the way. What they could not tolerate, however, was an attitude of defensiveness that refuses to admit mistakes. True learners, truly wise persons are those who desire to know when they have done wrong so that they can change their behavior. This is such a critical intellectual virtue. And even secular philosophers acknowledge that this is really what makes a difference in a a person's growth and understanding. It is that ability to receive correction, to welcome it, to recognize its, its healthy role in maturation. So how do we develop it? 
Well, cultivating teachability means, number one, a willingness to admit mistakes. This is part of humility, but here too, it, it, it's this requirement to say, I have, I have done wrong. I have misspoken. I have misstepped. I have acted unjustly. It also is demonstrated in the ability to, or the courage and, and skill to craft good questions. Teachability is not just receiving that admonition when you've done wrong, but teachability is also that proactive step of asking questions. And too many of us men spin our wheels in ignorance because we just don't ask questions. We have opportunities to spend time with men who are older and more mature, and we, just, we don't have any questions. We just have assertions. We just have statements. And that is what will impede your growth, that will impede your acquisition of knowledge. Have the courage and skill to craft good questions, and then, of course, have the patience to wait for the opportunities and to to hear the answers. And this means a lot of listening rather than speaking. And again, you know what the, the temptation is, that we can somewhat pat ourselves on the back that we ask good questions, but we're also at the same time the, the very ones to answer the questions we ask. But this kind of teachability, this intellectual virtue means we're silent, that we actually listen to the answer. And we don't just pretend with this glazed over look, but we actually intentively listen and seek to remember what has been spoken to us. And that is not just in the case of, of someone higher up, but, but this is in the case of a brother to a brother. In fact, this is another, uh, another important point of, of cultivating teachability. It means a, an eagerness to learn from the real people in your life. You have those people who will say, yeah, my teachers are all dead guys who wrote books. Well, that's great. Learn from them. But I'm, I'm, I'm concerned if you say, I can't learn anything about the li- from the living. I can't learn anything from those around me. No, that's a danger sign. We must seek to cultivate this teachableness to learn from the real people in our lives, the people that God puts across our path. The people in our Bible study, in your small group, here at this church, the people beside you, to to say, I can learn from you. You've got something that can help me. It also is demonstrated and cultivated an appreciation for those who are bold enough to confront you. Especially in this day and age, uh, uh, this, this culture of offendedness. Very few people today anymore will actually speak up. We've been taught to keep silent and to fear reprisals. But we, as men who treat knowledge seriously and seek to acquire it, we must have an appreciation for those who put their necks out on the line and will actually be brave enough to get in our face and to say, look, you sinned. You treated that other brother or sister Without dignity. What you did was wrong. And it takes this commitment to respect those people and to recognize that the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. Number five, our fifth intellectual 
virtue that must be developed is what we can call persistence. This is the resolve. It is expressed in this this commitment to plod. This commitment to plod. That's what persistence is, to plod along. I remember reading in the biography of William Carey, the father of modern missions, who served in India in the in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And the Lord used him to do remarkable things. And someone once asked him, what's the secret to your success? All these different Bible translations, all this different literature produced for the edification of the church. How did you do it all? And he said, you know what? I'm not the, knife, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He said, what I owe this to is the ability to plod. I can persist. Indeed, acquiring knowledge in this world will be difficult, but we must be resolved to continue no matter what the cost. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 4 to 5 says this, If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures. The picture there is that those treasures are not just lying around on the sidewalk and you just kind of stumble across them. No, you've got to dig. You've got to scramble into the, into the, the depth of the cave. You've got to dig deep, and it's going to require sweat and calluses, but you've got to keep going. Proverbs 8 verse 17 says, I love those, wisdom says, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Diligence. That's another synonym here for persistence. Proverbs 19 verse 27. Here Solomon says to his son, Cease listening, my son. Stop listening. Let your foot off the gas for just one moment. Cease listening, my son, to discipline. And you will stray from the words of knowledge. This is not something where you can just engage for a period of time and and then disengage and then pick it up a year later. The moment you cease this pursuit is the moment you begin to slide backwards. It's interesting to note, and study after study has has indicated this, that the greatest predictor of success among students in school is not IQ. The greatest predictor of success is persistence. And I can say that too, having having been in, in ministry for some time already, that the people that you want beside you are not necessarily those with the great IQ. They can be there one day and gone the next. The people you want beside you are those who are faithful, those who can plod. They're the reliable ones. Now, how do we cultivate this in our lives? Well, first of all, to cultivate this intellectual virtue requires an an expectation of obstacles and opposition. A realization that it isn't going to be easy. That you will have hardship. You resolve to learn. Your own flesh is going to not resign itself to come along the way easily. You will have to bring it along kicking and screaming. The enemy of your soul will not be happy for your resolve to learn. There will be obstacles, and and maybe even from real people around you. Expect it. It's part of the territory. Number two, resolve to keep your seat in the chair. To finish reading the book. 
to finish the project that you start. That's so important. I remember one time Pastor John giving counsel to, to new seminary students here, and he was asked, what's so important? What is a key character trait for, for a, a faithful pastor? And he said this, the ability to keep your seat in the chair. And that's not just for pastors, that's for all Christian men committed to, to developing the mind. It means that when you do sit down to study, you stay there until the time is up. The refrigerator will call, the coffee pot will call, the garden may even call. All kinds of things will want your attention, and some of them will be very good even, but you'll have to say, I keep my seat in the chair. You'll buy books recommended to you on the Trinity or on eschatology. And they'll sit at your table. You'll start the, the first few chapters and then they'll sit there. But this plotting, this perseverance means I bought the book, I'm going to read it. I'm going to do what it takes to finish. And so I'm going to take how many pages left, divide that by how many pages a day I can, I can read, and I'm going to get it done. It means calling others to account or to, 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 to keep you accountable to it. Saying, help me read this book. Help me study this topic. Help me take this course. Help me listen to the series of sermons. Ask me whether I have. It means a focus on contentment with small successes. Don't set before you these grandiose ideas of memorizing massive portions or of reading Calvin's Institutes in a week. Set before you small portions, doable portions, and then plod. That is the best recipe for learning. Small amounts, regular and consistent. And then also be, or refuse to be mastered by the flesh and its desire for ease and for comfort. Keep your seat. In the chair. Well, those are the five acquisition virtues. We've talked a lot about application, and in the next two weeks before we resume again on the 20th, just encourage you to go through each one of these and come up with your own resolutions. How can you grow in intellectual fear, in intellectual humility? in intellectual desire, in intellectual teachableness, and in intellectual persistence. Let's ask the Lord that He would grant us the strength and the resolve to do this for His glory's sake and for our good as well. Father, we're thankful for the promises that You hold out in Your Word that if we cry out for discernment and lift our voice for understanding, if we seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then we will discern the fear of you and discover your knowledge. Father, I pray that in all of our lives you would cultivate these virtues You'd convict us of areas of weakness where they are suffering 
And give us the resolve to cultivate and develop those things by the power that you provide through your truth and by your spirit so that our minds would be renewed. We would experience an ever-increasing consistency between our thinking and yours. And that you would be glorified as our lives are transformed to the image of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.